Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, when we were in Italy, the Vatican Museums blew my tiny mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we saw so much stuff and we saw the tiniest sliver of what they actually have there, mm-hmm. um, which was in and of itself kind of mind-blowing. I I saw things I did not realize the Vatican would have collected, including an entire room of Chagall's, uh, which is not what we're talking about today, but um, is indicative of the breadth of their collection. But there were a lot of things that I was just instantly fascinated by, and some I just fell in love with, and others that I just couldn't stop thinking about. And one of those was the kind of casual way that our tour guide there, and Tracy and I were in two different groups, um, the casual way that my tour guide Alexandra uh, mentioned the lost arm of Lao Cohen. And that's a story that's super up my alley, but I had never heard about it in any art history class, despite having taken a number of them. Yeah, I don't remember if our tour guide told us this story. I do have multiple photos of this sculpture in my pictures from when we were there, but like mm-hmm. there, there was just so much. I don't remember if we talked about this in our group. We definitely did, because I was like, woo Um, But the other thing I want to mention before we start is pronunciation, because 
If you look up how to pronounce this on a site like Forvo or on YouTube where people are talking about it, uh, boy, will you hear a whole lot of different versions. (laughs) I did this morning (laughs) when I was like, I'm always better when I hear people say it. Oh, I've heard people say it four different ways. So many different ways. I don't know what to do with this. So, um, yeah, there some people uh, will say it Leo Cohen almost like with harder pronunciation of all of the all of the vowels and consonants. Um, our wonderful tour guide pronounced it more like Lao Kun, which is what a lot of Europeans seem to pronounce it like, so that's what we're going with. Um, I also want to give a quick warning. There is a very sad beat towards the end of this episode involving the Holocaust. I just want to give you a heads up because it does kind of come out of nowhere. Um, But most importantly, we are talking about the whole story of this work of art, which is known as Lao Kun and his sons. It has been on quite a journey uh, the legend that inspired it is quite fun as well, and that is where we're going to begin. So yes, we're going to begin with who Lao Kun was in terms of Greek legend. And there are multiple versions of this story depending on who's the one telling it. He's pretty much always described as a Trojan and as a priest, often as a priest of Apollo, but sometimes as a priest of Poseidon. Yes, there I I was very tempted to start trying to make a um a branching chart of his story and where it varies because some will be the same up to a certain point and then they branch in different ways. They have some commonalities. Lao Kun's story always involves some action that angers the gods, although this gets a little bit muddled at times. In some versions, he brought the wrath of Apollo by breaking an oath of celibacy that he took as a priest. But even this is characterized a little bit differently depending on the source. The evidence of his breaking of the vow is sometimes simply the arrival of two sons, Antiphas and Tambreus. But the story is sometimes told with a little bit more of a salacious tone, with Lao Kun actually having sex with his wife in the sanctuary of Apollo. There is yet another version where it is Poseidon whose temple is desecrated. So according to those variations in the story, either Apollo or Athena punished Lao Kun for his sexual exploits by setting serpents on him. And these serpents crush Lao Kun's twin sons. One interpretation of this story is mentioned in footnotes of an article by S.B. Tracy, and this article is titled Lao Kun's Guilt. It appeared in the American Journal of Philology in 1987, And this interpretation is that all of this serves as part of an ongoing perception of Troy and its people as being known for their sexual misbehavior. Yeah, it kind of gets set up as though this was perhaps propaganda that supported these negative ideas about people from Troy at the time when this legend was being formed. But there is actually a much more popular and far more common story that involves Lao Kun, the serpents, and the sons, although the circumstances that lead to Lao Kun's punishment by the gods are very, very different. That version is the one that's told by the Roman poet Virgil, who lived in the first century BCE and into the beginning of the Common Era. In Virgil's Aeneid... Lao Kun is the only person in Troy who sees that the horse sent by the Greeks, that's the one we know as the Trojan horse, sees that as actually a sneak attack. 
And the Aeneid Laocoon is recorded as saying, quote, Oh, unhappy citizens, what madness! Do you think the enemies sailed away, or do you think any Greeks gift free of treachery? Is that Ulysses' or Odysseus's reputation? Either there are Greeks in hiding, concealed by the wood, or it's been built as a machine to use against our walls, or spy on our homes, or fall on the city from above, or it hides some other trick. Trojans don't trust this horse. Whatever it is, I'm afraid of Greeks, even those bearing gifts. I so want a t-shirt now that just says Trojans don't trust this horse. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Uh, According to Virgil, Lao Kun's warning brought the wrath of the gods because this war that was going on between the Greeks and Troy was a manifestation of their conflicts and desires. Athena and Poseidon were said to have been on the side of the Greeks in the Trojan War, so they did not appreciate Lao Kun red flagging that horse. The priest, Laocoon, used his spear at this point to pierce the side of the horse and then sacrificed a bull, an offering to the gods in the hopes of bringing favor and protection to Troy. But instead of favor, what appeared were two venomous sea serpents. In Virgil's text, here's what happened next. Quote, they move on a set course toward Laocoon, and first each serpent entwines the slender bodies of his two sons, and biting at them devours their wretched limbs. Then, as he comes to their aid, weapons in hand, they seize him too and wreathe him in massive coils, now encircling his waist twice, twice winding their scaly folds around his throat, their high necks and heads tower above him. He strains to burst the knots with his hands, his sacred headband drenched in blood and dark venom, while he sends terrible shouts up to the heavens, like the bellowing of a bull that has fled wounded from the altar, shaking the useless axe from its neck. Certainly evocative. Uh, Once Laocoon was dead from this attack, the Trojans in the Aeneid, seeing the serpent attack as a sign that he had clearly been wrong, accepted the gift of the horse. And then, of course, the Greeks were able, according to the legend, to take the city from within. Regardless of which specifics any reader may prefer uh, regarding this whole Laocoon story, the image of the priest and his sons being killed by the serpents sent from the gods for mistakenly offending said gods has long been a powerful one, and it led to one of the most compelling statues in all of history. So around the same time that Virgil wrote his version of this story, according to art historians, someone carved a marble statue depicting Laocoon and his sons battling with serpents. This is sometimes estimated as being created around 200 BCE. That doesn't quite line up with the time frames of the sculptors that are usually name-checked in relation to the sculpture, Pliny the Elder, who lived in the first century, wrote of the statue sculpted to commemorate the story in his book, The Natural History. He attributes the work to three artists who he mentions by name. Quote, In the case of several works of very great excellence, the number of artists that have been engaged upon them has proved a considerable obstacle to the fame of each, no individual being able to engross the whole of the credit, and it being impossible to award it in due proportion to the names of the several artists combined, such as the case with the Laocoon, for example, in the palace of the Emperor Titus, 
a work that may be looked upon as preferable to any other production of the art or painting or of statuary. It is sculpted from a single block, both of the main figure as well as the children, and the serpents with their marvelous folds. This group was made in concert by three most eminent artists, Agisander, Polydorus, and Athenodorus, natives of Rhodes. This statue is incredibly dynamic. Lao Kun is shown with his body twisted as he wrestles with the serpents, and he is flanked on each side by his sons, who are also entangled in the serpents' bodies. One of the serpents is about to bite Lao Kun on the hip. One of the children appears to be already very near death, the other still struggling free and watching his brother and father in terror. Laocoon's face shows the agony of the struggle, although there has been some debate about his expression. We're going to talk about that later in the episode. This is considered to be an iconic artistic representation of agony, as well as an incredible achievement in representing human anatomy. It's also pretty large. It's almost life-size. The dimensions are listed as a height of 208 centimeters, a width of 163 centimeters, and a depth of 112 centimeters. So that is 6.8 feet tall, 5.3 feet wide, and 3.7 feet deep. But despite its great size and the level of admiration that it garnered and the fact that it was part of the collection of the Emperor Titus, just as was the case with so many other artifacts from the Roman Empire, this statue of Laocoon and his sons disappeared, basically without any fanfare and with no record of its whereabouts. It was gone for almost 1,400 years. So coming up, we're going to talk about Laocoon's rediscovery. But first, we will pause for a sponsor break. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
all these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On January 14, 1506, vineyard owner Felici de Fredis made a discovery while working on his land on one of the seven hills of Rome, Esquiline Hill. It was part of a group of sculptures that was found on the site, something that happened with a degree of regularity as Rome went through a growth spurt starting in the 15th century. In this case, the find was under the site that had been the Baths of Titus, a place known as La Capoce, which means the heads about six fathoms, that's 36 feet, underground. The viticulturist's find was communicated to the Vatican, and Pope Julius II immediately sent a team to investigate. Included were Michelangelo and sculptor and architect Giuliano de Sangallo. So for context in terms of Michelangelo's career, he had completed the David two years before, and he would start his work on the Sistine Chapel two years later. Sangallo's son, Francesco, also went to the site. And in the late 1560s, which was 60 years after the find, he wrote about being there when the statue was first discovered. Francesco wrote, quote, The first time I was in Rome, when I was very young, the Pope, Julius II, was told about the discovery of some very beautiful statues in a vineyard near Santa Maria Maggiore on the Esquiline Hill. The Pope ordered one of his officers to run and tell Giuliano de Sangallo to go and see them. He set off immediately. Since Michelangelo Buonorati was always to be found at our house, my father having summoned him and having assigned him the commission of the Pope's tomb, my father wanted him to come along too. I joined up with my father and off we went. I had climbed down to where the statues were when immediately my father said, that is the Laocoon, which Pliny mentions. Then they dug the hole wider so that they could pull the statue out. 
As soon as it was visible, everyone started to draw, all the while discoursing on ancient things, chatting about the ones in Florence. The ones he references there are ancient statues owned by the Medici. Just a few weeks later, a deal was struck between the Vatican and Felice de Freddis. In exchange for the statue, Freddis would receive, as income, the tolls from one of the gates of Rome's. That was the Porta San Giovanni. Shortly after that, the statue was moved to the Vatican. It was placed in the Cortile del Belvedere, and its display position has since evolved with the establishment of the Museo Pio Clementino in the 1770s. It's in the gallery known as the Octagonal Courtyard. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about how it got moved around in a minute. The establishment of the Laocoon sculpture as a possession of the Vatican was and remains significant. Pope Julius II put the artwork on public display, which marks the opening of the Vatican Museums to the public. Julius II felt that it was important for people to see this work of art because he saw looking at great art as a means of spiritual renewal. Unsurprisingly, the depiction of Laocoon and his sons was not intact when it was discovered. There were pieces missing, most notably the right arm of each of the figures. Additionally, the sun on the right of the statue was detached from the rest. Laocoon's missing arm in particular left the work feeling incomplete to enough people that after several years, the Pope's architect, Donato Bramante, who started working on the Vatican's Belvedere Court in 1505 and St. Peter's Basilica in 1506, polled the most accomplished sculptors of the day to see what they thought should be done. This is sometimes described as a contest, and I suppose it could have been, but if it was, it was pretty informal. This challenge was issued by Bramante in 1510. Raffaello Senzio di Urbino, who was better known simply as Raphael, suggested that the arm should extend upward. But he wasn't even really in the mix as far as this competition. Bramante had made him the judge of the whole thing. Jacopo d'Antonio Sensovino also put forth a plan for an upward-reaching arm. Michelangelo had a different idea that based on the sculpt of the musculature of the chest and back and shoulder, that the arm should be bent back, as though Laocoon was reaching to grasp the serpent on his back. In the end, Sansovino's idea won out, and the statue was restored with an upraised arm. This was not a particularly surprising decision. Michelangelo and Raphael were rivals. They had an assortment of conflicts. (laughs) making opposite decisions from one another, not too surprising. Yeah, that's the gentlest way we can describe their relationship. Michelangelo, in particular, was very angry about a lot of opportunities that Raphael received. Uh, The restoration of this sculpture, including not just the arm, but several other pieces as well, was completed in 1540. Initially, the extension that they had decided upon was used just so that copies could be cast of the piece. It wasn't actually affixed to the sculpture in any kind of permanent way. Then, one of Michelangelo's students, Giovanni Angelo Montorsoli, attached a version of the arm for display that reached upward. And that one actually reached upward at a, a more um, aggressive upward rise than even the one that had had won this little discussion among the artists. Uh, When it was done, the composition was undeniably eye-catching. It created a diagonal line that drew the viewer's eyes upward, and it was viewed by a lot of people. It was also drawn by a lot of people, and it was lauded for its beauty with this new appendage and the composition of it, although 
Not universally, of course. It's art. Everybody has a different opinion. So now we have to jump ahead. 250 years, basically, to April 2nd, 1796, when Napoleon Bonaparte moved his forces into Italy in an effort to confront Austrian troops there. Although Napoleon's forces were not expected to fare very well because they were outnumbered, Bonaparte was aggressive and managed victory. It was the first of many as he chased Austrian forces through the country. He took a lot of Italian territories in the process. That is, of course, the very brief version of the story. But the important thing about that conflict as it relates to Lao Kun is the resulting Treaty of Tolentino. This treaty, signed in February 1797, was the result of months of negotiations between the Papal States and France. And in that treaty, France officially gained control of many places it had occupied since the invasion, and the Vatican officially and formally recognized France as the owner of a number of works of art that had been looted during all of this, including the Lao Kun. So that's how, in July of 1798, the sculpture was shipped to Paris. It was to go on display at the Musée Central des Arts, now part of the Louvre. And the sculpture stayed in Paris for the next 17 years. When Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo in June of 1815, that agreement was voided, and the art that had been signed over was returned to Italy— the journey home to Rome started for Laocoon and his sons in October of 1815. It took several months to get there. It arrived the following January. Yeah, that was not the only piece of art that was shipped back, but uh, for the purposes of our story, it is, of course, the most important. And once the sculpture was back in Italy, it was assessed. The previously completed additions needed to be reattached. They had been removed before the statue was shipped to Paris. The task fell to sculptor Antonio Canova. He actually thought that the prior editions, the upstretched arm and the arm that was also added to the sun on the viewer's right, that sun is often referred to as the older sun, Canova thought those were not really correct, but he replaced them according to the prior restoration. And he actually told one of his colleagues in a letter that he knew the decisions on their composition had been made in error, but he felt that if he changed them or even raised the issue, it was just going to start a big fight with both artists and historians, and he wanted no part of it because there was no benefit to him, and he did not see any possible way he would come out of such a conflict unscathed. But that was not the end of the Lao Kun makeovers. What may be the most surprising of all of them is yet to come, and we will get to it right after we hear from some sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the 
the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Almost 400 years after the Laocoon was found in Rome and acquired by the Vatican Museum, the mystery of Laocoon's missing arm was solved a little more satisfactorily through a stroke of luck and a good and well-trained eye. At the time, the curator of the Museo Branco in Rome was archaeologist Ludwig Pollock, who was born in Czechoslovakia in 1868. As a boy, Ludwig had always been drawn to antiquity, and he studied art history and archaeology in Prague and Vienna before moving on to Rome, where he settled down for the rest of his life. And in Rome, he became recognized as an expert at assessing antiques and being able to correctly identify both their origin and their value. When Pollock happens to be visiting a stonemason's shop in Rome on the Via Labicana, he spotted the arm. It was at this point just a few hundred meters away from the place where the Laocoon had first been found. Pollock had studied the Laocoon and his sons enough to just visually ID the arm as a likely match. 
I feel like if this had happened in a different year, it would be something we would talk about on Unearthed. Yeah. Uh, And it really does speak to Pollock's great skill because he was, there was one write-up I read of him, I had to read it in translation, where they were like, no, he could with a glance tell you correctly, like, what era something was from and how much, like, it would be valued at. He was just incredibly skilled. Pollock had actually seen the arm in 1903 when he was scouting for another project, but he didn't publish his findings until 1905. He took the time in between discovery and going public to collect supporting evidence. And he even took it to the Vatican during that time in 1904, presenting it to the curators of the art collection there. And he wrote in his diary of that particular meeting, quote, the custodians were quite astonished. Sadly, in 1943, Pollock appeared on the Gestapo list of Jews in Rome that were to be rounded up during the occupation. Pollock didn't believe he was in danger. He was prominent, yes. He was famous for his work in curating and dealing art and the Laocoon arm in particular, but he hadn't done anything wrong or suspicious. He didn't think there was any reason for anyone to target him. Even the Vatican is said to have sent a driver to his home to offer to take him to the safety of Vatican City, and he declined. But on October 16th, he was arrested with his family, and they were all shipped to Auschwitz-Birkenau, and they were murdered there. Although Ludwig Pollock did not live to see it, the arm that he had spotted was eventually reunited and restored to the statue in 1957. And it was a perfect fit. There was even a drill hole in the arm that perfectly matched up to a drill hole on the torso. And it was, just as Michelangelo had described as the most likely position, bent behind Laocoon, grasping at the serpent on his back. And that is the version that remains on display today. Even though it's been 65 years since the correct arm was restored, you'll see a lot of images of the Laocoon that show the upstretched arm. It's not because they're the photos of the one in the Vatican, but because there are a whole lot of copies that were made of the statue. These are floating around in all kinds of other collections. A lot of times those have been photographed. Uh, I saw one as I was listening to lots of different art historians say the name of this sculpture. <laughs> it was a copy of it in another collection. I don't remember how the arm was positioned, though, because I was just listening for the words. Yeah, a lot of them do have that upstretched, raised to the heavens arm. And it's kind of great because it makes it really easy to compare and contrast how the the two different versions look. And you can kind of see where the musculature does as Michelangelo said, match up to to the gesture he finally ended up with. And we mentioned earlier that this statue is sometimes dated to circa 200 BCE, and that being contradicted by the lifetimes of the artists that were mentioned as creating it. But though Pliny named Agisander, Polydorus, and Athenodorus of Rhodes, he wasn't accurate in his description of the statue, so that kind of calls his entire account into question. The big problem with his description of it is that he claimed it was carved from one block of marble. That is untrue. It is made of several pieces, seven in fact, of marble that are expertly fitted together. There have even been theories that this dates back to the 4th century BCE. The Vatican Museum lists its date of creation as being around 40 to 30 BCE, The sculpture doesn't really match stylistically with the 4th century BCE date, 
The classic period had a lot more static poses in sculptures, but it does match with the more dynamic styles found in artwork from the Hellenistic period. That period is dated from 323 BCE to 33 BCE. There's also a possible explanation for that disparity. There are a lot of art historians today who agree that the Laocoon that Pliny wrote about was a copy of an older bronze sculpture. Yeah, so this one that we're seeing is probably the copy. Uh, There have always been more controversies about this work of art. From a composition and artistic perspective, there's been a lot of discussion and debate. In the mid-1700s, German art historian Johann Joachim Winkelmann had written about the work as an ideal representation of beauty. He had also commented on the arm and its debate, writing, quote, This arm, entangled by the snake, must have been folded over the head of the statue. Yet it looks as if the arm folded above the head would have in some way made the work wrong. In 1766, German philosopher Gotthold Lessing wrote an essay about art that was inspired by the Laocoon statue. It was titled, Laocoon or the Limitations of Poetry, The majority of the work is really about visual art versus poetical art, and the Laocoon is only discussed in the first part. But Lessing makes the case that the Laocoon is ultimately not conveying a realistic scenario because viewers would not be able to cope with it. He wrote, quote, The demands of beauty cannot be reconciled with the pain and all its disfiguring violence. So it had to be reduced. The scream had to be softened to a sigh, not because screaming betrays an ignoble soul, but because it distorts the features in a disgusting manner. Simply imagine Laocoon's mouth forced wide open and then judge. Imagine him screaming and then look. From a form which inspired pity, it has now become an ugly, repulsive figure from which we gladly turn away. For the fight of pain provokes distress, However, the distress should be transformed through beauty into the tender feeling of pity. There are lots and lots of papers and books written about whether the depiction of pain in the sculpture is beautiful or horrifying and what it means in context of ideas of Greek manhood, comparing and contrasting in some cases Winkelmann's and Lessing's takes on it as it relates to the Laocoon. So many papers and books. <laughs> I just want to point that out. If you have read one that you love, uh, I did not read them all, obviously, and I apologize that it's not included. So many, so many. <laughs> one aspect of the statue that has troubled art historians and critics is the expression on Laocoon's face as a scientific study, specifically his forehead. If you look at his eyebrows, they're clearly tensed. They create a ridge in the center that points slightly upward. It's a pretty obvious expression of anguish, struggle, and pain. But then his forehead has ripples on it, and they stretch from side to side. They're unaffected by the furrowed brow. They look relatively placid. This has really irked a lot of people over the years. French neurologist Guillaume-Benjamin Armand Duchesne, often named as Duchesne de Boulogne, declared that the combination of characteristics was physically impossible and that the disparity detracted from the art's impact. 
Building on that, in 1872, Charles Darwin wrote about the issue in his work, The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. And he wrote it in a way that at first seems kind of damning, but then acknowledges that this might have just had to have been an aesthetic choice, writing, quote, The ancient Greek sculptors were familiar with the expression, as shown in the statues of Laocoon and Aretino, but as Duchenne remarks, they carried the transverse furrows across the whole breadth of the forehead and thus committed a great anatomical mistake. This is likewise the case in some modern statues. It is, however, more probable that these wonderfully accurate observers intentionally sacrificed truth for the sake of beauty than that they made a mistake. For rectangular furrows on the forehead would not have had a grand appearance on the marble. William Blake saw this piece not as a representation of the story of Laocoon, but as a copy and a mediocre one of a Hebraic work that depicted Jehovah and his sons, Adam and Satan. Blake used the image of the Laocoon statue in an illustration for the Cyclopedia, or Universal Dictionary of Arts, Sciences, and Literature, which he illustrated for Welsh botanist and minister Abraham Rees. Blake's two-dimensional image also included inscriptions surrounding the image of Laocoon and his sons, which commented on Christianity, morality, the arts, and the quest for wealth. Yeah, that's if you ever just want to spend some time watching an artist work through his uh, snark about a thing, read all of those inscriptions that William Blake put on his illustration of the Laocoon. He seems to think it's great that they're getting bitten by the snakes. Uh, In 2005, art historian Lynn Catterson put forth a very controversial idea that the Laocoon may have been a forgery by Michelangelo. She cited an anatomy study drawing the artist had done of a man's back as a piece of evidence, noting that in her interpretation, it appeared similar to the back of the Laocoon. If you've studied Michelangelo, you know he often drew out his his plan and kind of did anatomical studies before he started carving. She believed that Michelangelo may have been hoping that the wealthy Medici family would have wanted to purchase ancient Greek and Roman objects. That was something they collected, and that this sculpture would have enticed them. While Catterson said she never set out to cause an uproar, many, many art historians have gotten very angry about it and spoken out against her theory. Art historian Richard Brilliant, author of My Laocoon, Alternative Claims in the Interpretation of Artworks, called her theory, quote, non-credible on any count. In January of this year, Ludwig Pollock and his family were remembered with memorial stones that were set in place outside their last address at Piazza Santi Apostoli 81. And now you can go see the Laocoon if you happen to be in Rome and visit the Vatican Museum, which I highly recommend. It Be ready for your brain to be pudding at the end. <laughs> There's so much stuff. <laughs> there is. Um, uh, it's kind of one of the things where I wish in the future that I could take a leisurely trip to Rome and just spend like days visiting the Vatican museums and like go into one area at a time and just skip the rest and be like, today is sculpture only. Today is paintings. (laughs) 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 Um, That is the story so far of the Laocoon. Who knows what else may happen? Uh, Since we're only a hundred years out from the last development, there could be more in its uh, 2000 plus year life. 
Uh, in the meantime, though, I have uh, kind of a, a fun listener mail from our listener, Aaron, who writes, Hi, ladies, longtime listener, sort of from both ends, but I am not sure if I will ever get my PhD. I guess I'm just a master's student in history. I was listening in early May when you both talked about the Star Wars rides at Disney's Hollywood Studios. I had just gone there with my family and had the experience that should give Tracy some potential comfort. I have ridden the Star Tours ride ever since the original at Disneyland, and when I was younger, it was a repeat great fun ride. In April, on spring break, me and my sons were at Disney World, and the line wait for the newest Star Wars rides were such that we decided to ride the updated version of the classic first. It was cool that there are cameos from the new movies, but I felt very nauseous and jittery by the end of the ride. It seemed that my time with roller coasters must be ending. The next ride was Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, and that was great fun, getting to pew-pew my way through the ride and very little nausea. Last was the longest wait time, Rise of the Resistance, and that ride basically takes you into a Star Wars movie. The waits between that and the actual ride were not great, and again, no nausea. By the end of our trip in Orlando, I had ridden quite a few rather intense coasters and was a bit nauseous but had a lot of fun, but not nearly as bad as that first Star Tours ride. I have a theory that there are people who cannot tolerate those types of rides at all, those who can excessively tolerate those rides and love every second, but most of us are in between and our bodies get used to it and enjoy the ride. There is probably scientific evidence to support this, but sorry, I am too lazy to look it up anyway to each their own, and we spent so much money just getting in the park that I was going to ride the rides. Um, I had meant to write sooner, but life got in the way, as it does. Listening to the comments about motion sickness made me want to share my own experience. Listening to your podcast has certainly helped during the past few horrible years. Knowledge of the past can help give us perspective for today. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron, I can tell you why you still have trouble with Star Tours and not the other rides. I don't think Tracy has been on the other two attractions. Mm-mm. They don't involve 3D glasses. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. It's the 3D part. It's like the gimbal rig may or may not make you ill, but the gimbal rig plus 3D, which your brain is trying to perceive while also maintaining your physical equilibrium, is what makes most people feel a little queasy. Yeah, <laughs> or can't do it. In Tracy's case, quite queasy, as I recall. Um, so take heart for anybody that that has that problem. The other two probably won't bother you at all. Um, and are wonderful. So I just, in case anybody was fearful after that discussion, (laughs) you don't have to be. Uh, Rise of the Resistance in particular, you could not do 3D glasses because you're getting on and off different ride vehicles and walking through things at some parts and riding things at others. And that would be a trip and not very fun at all. And it would break the immersion. Uh, But (laughs) if you would like to write to us about your vacations to theme parks or the Vatican Museums or anywhere else or anything else, you can do that at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as at Missed in History. And if you would like to subscribe to the podcast and haven't gotten around to yet, good news, super easy. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. 
Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.